Something was incredible last week. Um, it was just good. Uh, from the music to, I mean, I, you guys know how much I love Stacy Stafford. And, and so to have him here sharing was phenomenal. And, and the food was incredible as always. Um, but the most joyous thing that we had was just how people interacted with each other. And you could just, uh, Stacy told me, he said, I've never felt a church. Like I could just feel the love in your church. Like it was genuine love. And and that's the truth. Like, this is a family-feeling church, and, and there's nothing fake about that. That's really who we are. And so it was good that that was able to show the way it did. Um, we are uh, kind of at the back end of a series that we've been doing called Don't Play Church, Be the Church. Uh, and, and we've been looking at what it means to be an authentic church. And, and it's based out of Acts chapter 2. Uh, I've been reading it every week, and, and I want to read it again. In Acts chapter 2, we have an account of right after the Holy Spirit has come upon them, Peter has preached the message of salvation. The church has grown from 120 people to over 3,000 people. And, and we find this tucked away at the very end of Peter's message uh, in verse number 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food and with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved." So if we want to know what an authentic church looks like, we go to the beginning. And this is what the foundation of the Christian church looked like. That they were fellowshipping, that they were um, seeing God do incredible things. And out of that, God began to add people to their, to their uh, midst. Um, if you'll remember, in week one of this series, we took a look at Legos. And talked about how they connect with one another and build amazing things. And how the design of the church is that God expects us to have connecting relationships to build the church that he wants us to be. In the second week we looked at Transformers and, and looking at this verse and many others through the book of Acts and some of the New Testament encounters. We see that God expects us to be transformers of our communities. That he expects us to be the catalyst for change in our, in our, in our local communities. Um, most recently... We looked at silly, silly Putty and how we're to have a moldable faith like Silly Putty, uh, especially looking at the story uh, in Jeremiah, the potter, and how he molded that clay into exactly what he wanted it to be. And God does that in our lives. And today we're going to look at an invention called the Slinky. And we're going to look at what it means to be a servant in the Slinky mentality or to have Slinky service. But let me pray first. God, thank you this day that you've given us. It's a beautiful day. But what makes it beautiful is that we can come together as a church and hear directly from you. God, we've been ushered into your presence through worship, and now we ask in your presence you begin to speak in our lives. God, I pray that your anointing would be so strong today that anyone who's come here bearing a burden that they can no longer carry, they would feel just the immense relief of laying it at the foot of the cross. God, this morning we ask that you do incredible things as you call us to new places, and we'll give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the, the, the reason we're looking at a slinky is the fluid movement that it has, how it moves is an incredible thing. And, and I was thinking about a story that I'm familiar with. There was these two gas workers, gas men. And one of them was the training officer, and the other one was 
this young man who was learning. And as they went to go check a meter, he was teaching him all the things of, of what to look for and how to properly process everything. And, and as he's doing these, um, the woman is watching him from her house. And she's looking at him going, oh, that's cool seeing him teaching things. This is a cool thing. And, and so the older man looks at the younger man. He says, you know, I think I could beat you in a foot race back to the truck. And so they take off in a sprint, right, and they're neck and neck. And as they get there, they hear two more footsteps behind them. And they look, and the woman's huffing and puffing. And they say, why are you running with us? And she said, anytime two gas men go running from the equipment, I, I just think I have to follow them, right? Like all of us need to understand movement, right? We need to move. And uh, I used to, I, I still, he's still my friend. Uh, when I was in the military, uh, there was a sergeant who now he pastors a church in, in Buffalo, New York. But he, uh, he told me the story about how one time he was at a softball game watching his kids play softball. And he said that uh, he saw somebody running, like an adult running. He, he's like, I just took off running too. And he said he was running beside the person. He said, what are we running from? And she said, I'm just running because I have an errand to go to. And I said, well, well, why did you run? He's like, whenever white people start running, uh, black people just run because we need to be sure we're safe. Right? Uh, and so it was funny how that works out. But when we look at how God expects us to move, He expects us to react if movement uh, equal to His movement. When we look at the origin of the slinky, it's incredible because most of the toys that we've looked at over the past four weeks have all actually initially been failed inventions. The silly putty was a failed invention, and, and somebody saw value in it and, and made it into what it is today, which is just an incredible thing when you look at how that parallels to our lives, that God created us to worship Him, and we failed in that endeavor. From the very beginning with Adam and Eve, it was a failed invention. But God looked at us and saw value in us, and He still has made something incredible out of each and every one of us. And the slinky is no different in that the man who invented it, actually invented it by accident. Uh, in 1943, he was working to devise a spring that could keep sensitive ship equipment steady at sea. And so he needed one that wasn't too sturdy, but also not too weak. And, and so he began to work on it. And, and through that, he accidentally built this. And, and so one day as it's sitting on the shelf, he actually bumps it and he watches it as it does the cool thing. Have you ever seen how a slinky will walk down steps, right? Well, that initially happened as he bumped it off a shelf, this spring that wasn't meant for anything. And it started to walk down the shelves and he thought, that's pretty cool. I think people will like that. And so he shares this with his wife and, and he and his wife decide to borrow $500 to manufacture um, these, and so they decide they're going to manufacture 400 of them, and they're going to just set out in front of a store in New York City, and so they build it, they, they build the equipment, they make it, they put 400 of them out, and the man shows them exactly what he did as it walks down some shelves in front of them, and people are blown away, and it says the first 400 slinkies sold within minutes. And since that, since the beginning of the 20th century, or the end of the 20th century, there's been 250 million slinkies sold. It's incredible, right? A failed invention, 50 years later, could be one of the most top-selling toys in the history. What, what I love about a slinky is that it goes only where my hands tell it to go. Right? It doesn't have a mind of its own. If, if I wanted to go over here, if I wanted to make it go somewhere, it would only go 
where my hands tell it to go. That's what I love about it, right? Because we're in control of it and we get to make it do what we want. And if we want it to walk down the steps, we make it walk down the steps. If we want it to do something cool, we make it do those things. It does exactly what we want it to do. And so what's cool about it is by it following what I tell it to do, it serves my joy. Does that make sense? Like, I'm the happiest with a slinky in my hand when it does what I ask it to do. Because it's serving my joy through that process. Uh, I want to read to you the story that I call a slinky story in the Bible. And it's found in Exodus chapter 40. And we're going to read the last verses of this. You know, leading up to this, if you were to read the first 37 verse, excuse me, the first 33 verses, you would see that it's God telling Moses exactly how to erect a tabernacle. How to, how to set the tent up, who goes into it, how everything's to be orchestrated within it. And so that's how the first 33 verses are unfolded. Now this is the very last chapter in the book of Exodus. And so what I find incredible is the rebellious people end their rebellion in this particular verse. Verse number 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. And fire was in it by night inside of all the house of Israel throughout all their journey. And so what we read there is the people of Israel would not move until God would move. It's an incredible story of how rebellious people become submissive to their God. What we call this in what we call this glory right here is a word that we have called Shekinah glory. And it talks about this undescribable glory of God. We read about it here. We read several other encounters of the Old Testament. We read a lot about it in the book of Revelation when we see God pictured in heaven. And in just a minute we'll see it uh, unfold in the book of Acts. But this Shekinah glory is this glory that we can't describe. It's the glory that only comes from God. It's why Moses couldn't look God in the face because His glory was so illuminating that it would have blinded him. It's the Shekinah glory. And so the people of Israel knew that the Shekinah glory had rested upon the tabernacle by the form of a cloud. And if you can imagine the fog look that would have surrounded and filled the tabernacle, the people knew God is with us. And at nighttime, because they couldn't see fog that good, it would show itself in the form of fire. And it would look like some massive candle just shining out the tent. And the people knew by just looking in the center of the city, God is with us at this moment. And when God would lift His Spirit from the tabernacle and begin to move forward and guide them, they realized that they had to pack up and follow God because where God was is where they wanted their camp to be. It's an incredible thing because I believe this mindset is the very mindset that started the Christian church. We read in Acts chapter 1, verse 6-8, through And when they had come together, unified, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what we read here is is they waited on God. And when His Spirit filled them, they left with His Spirit. It's the same thing we read about in the book of Exodus. They waited for God's Spirit. And when His Spirit went, they went with it. What we have unfold here is used to God would dwell in a physical tabernacle. But when Jesus died, people became the tabernacle in which God would dwell. And so we no longer had to wait for this cloud to move where we knew it to go. He would indwell us. Our tabernacle would be the place that he chose to dwell. And when the, everything rested upon us to move when he told us to move and to wait when he told us to wait. And so today I, I want to talk about that. I want to spend just a brief moment looking at how do we become slinkies in our service are basically asking the question of how do we move when God tells us to move and how do we wait when he tells us to be still and how do we not take for granted all the things he does for us in our lives. You know, from Acts chapter 1 till we read the indwelling of God's spirit in, the, in those who were in the upper room in Acts chapter 2 is a span of 10 days. And so from what we just read right there where he said, he said this promise that he was going to indwell them and, and they were going to leave that place until it actually unfolded was 10 days. I don't know if you've ever waited on anything, but 10 days is a long time to wait on a promise, right? When I was growing up and, you know, you would find a little girlfriend and she would be like, I'm going to call you at 5 o'clock. And when 501 rolled around and she hadn't called, my patience was very thin. I was like, I don't know, like, is my phone line working or did, did, are they dead? You know, like all the worst case scenarios work in your mind because as humans, we weren't created to be patient people who wait on things, right? We want it now, right? Burger King says you can have it your way and super fast. And so that's how we live our lives. Like, I want it now. I want it super fast. But the first step of being slinkies in our service to God is learning to wait. If I told you, in order to know how to move, you had to stand still, you would go, that's a crazy concept. How can I learn to move if I'm being still? If I told you to prepare for a marathon, I said, but the only way you're going to win that marathon is just to stand still, you go, that's impossible. How can, I ever been, how can I ever build my endurance up if I'm just standing still? But we find that God has the expectation of his people and more particularly his church is that when he wants us to do incredible things, the first step in that journey is to wait. And so for 10 days, 120 people who had heard the promise waited for God, especially 11 disciples who had walked with Jesus for three and a half years waited for God. And so these 10 days come to pass and we find in Acts 2 verses 1 through 4 when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
And so what unfolds here, when God indwells people for the first time, what we see is they begin to speak all these different languages. If you were to read past that, you will read all the languages that are spoken. People are blown away. They think, how do these, how do these uh, men from Galilee, who were considered to be dumb men because they were fishermen, how, how do these men know to speak my language? But what I love is when I was reading this verse this morning, especially after reading Exodus, something appears over their head that's very familiar to us because we read about that appearing in the book of Exodus. God, who would show himself in his Shekinah glory, would show up leading his people in the form of fire. And in that moment, God had honored their waiting period, and he indwelled those who were up there, 120 people, and he showed himself through a fire to lead them to a new place. Waiting on God comes with great rewards. As a matter of fact, if we were to look at some of the greatest miracles we read about in the Bible, we find that they're birthed out of waiting. That it's, it's not some action that brought about a miracle. It's actually they're, they're being able to wait on God doing something great. The, the first story that comes to my mind is when God parts the Red Sea for them to walk across on dry land. That's one of the greatest miracles we read about in the Bible because we don't understand how it's done. And so to read that unfold, we go, man, they must have had incredible perseverance. No, we find that Moses stands there and God says, hey, just be still. I've got it. I'll take care of this for you. What we see is some of the greatest miracles, their birth, when God says, stand still and let me take over. If we're to ever be who God has designed us to be as humans and as a church, the first thing we have to do is learn to just stop. It doesn't mean that we add more programs. It doesn't mean that I read more books. It doesn't mean that I, if I'm praying for two hours, I'm now praying for 26 hours a day. None of those things are what moves us closer to God. It's when we learn how to just wait. Just stand still. And let he who began the great work in us complete that great work. Let him, when we get to the Red Sea and we go, God, did you just bring me here to die? For him to go, just wait a second. I got this. And he crushes our enemies in our very sight because God births out of our waiting. He births incredible things. But we have to learn to wait. So many times when we're praying for a miracle, we want God to do it now. God, I need this in my life. Please do it now. God, we need this in our church. Please do it now. And so often the response that we get from God is, just wait. It's not, it's not time yet. Just wait. Do you remember me telling you when I read that story and the last time we were together and, uh, at, at, based on the pottery and that teacup and how the potter was working that teacup and every time the teacup goes, I can't take it anymore. I want you to stop. And he, just wait. You're not quite where I want you yet, so just wait just a little bit. If you're waiting on a miracle, if you're waiting for God to do something incredible in our church, it may be that we just have to wait a little bit longer. It may mean that God wants us to take one more lap around that wall before he's ready to crumble it, and we just need to wait and be patient for that. To be who God wants us to be, the church he's called us to be, sometimes it just means that we wait. And so to move means to wait, but it also means 
When he tells us to go, we go. We found this in, in the book of Numbers. It's kind of lengthy, but I want to read it to you. It's Numbers 9, 15 through 23. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it, always, so it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud would settle down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in the camp. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time, that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. What I just read you right there may be confusing, but the basis of what it says is when the cloud was standing still, they waited. But the moment that the cloud moved on, so did they. They were willing at any moment to go wherever God was. They were willing to move if it meant move, they were willing to run if it meant run. If it meant that we had to grab the kids and throw them under our arms, we were going to go to wherever the presence of God was because they knew in the presence of God was safety. And as, as often as God calls us to wait while He does incredible things and He's working out things that we don't even understand in the moment, He also calls us to go. The first thing that we see unfold in the new church is they wait for 10 days and God indwells them. And the next command that's given to them is to go. Go in the presence of God. As a church, if we're to ever have this slinky moldability, if we're to ever have the joy of God in our hearts, it means that we have to go when he tells us to go. It means that sometimes we have to fracture relationships in order to get closer to our God. If you're between me and him, then it means that I have to go through you to get to him, but I got to get into the presence of God. And the people of Israel had that mindset. If the cloud was to leave, then I got to grab everything as quick as I can and go because I have to be in the presence of God. There was such a hunger and an understanding of the power of God that they knew they couldn't be separated from it. My question to you today is, is, does that hunger and desire exist in your life? Because too often we become very easy at waiting. I can sit in a chair and listen to somebody tell me things. But can I go? Do I have a desire to move when God tells me to move? Do I have a desire to share with people the things that he's placed in my heart? Do I have a desire to do what he's asked of me to do? It's one of the hardest things that we struggle at. But we have to learn to move at the pace of God. 
I, I have done a message in the past called Moving with God. And, and I read the, the encounter at the Red Sea where God said to stand still. And I said, sometimes when we need a breakthrough, it means we stand still. And then I read out of Galatians where Paul talks about walking in the Spirit. And I go, in order to move forward in God, it means we walk in the Spirit. And then I would read this beautiful verse from Paul towards the end of his life where he would talk about running the race with patience. What God has asked of us is to move at the pace He's called us to do. It means that we stand still sometimes. And it means that we sprint sometimes. But all of it is encompassed around the movement of God. Like a slinky, I only move where He tells me to move. And I only go where He tells me to go. And in that, I find safety and comfort in the hands of my Creator. Finally, the last thing is don't take God for granted. I know you're probably listening to that going, I would never take God for granted. He created me. He's made me everything that I am today. But I want to read to you this caution that Paul did to the church of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1-6, Paul said, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Talking about in the, New, in the Old Testament, how they were all in the cloud. They followed God. I don't that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So this story that should serve as encouragement, moving with God, following Him, Paul uses it to the church of Corinth and says, don't take God for granted. You saw or you read about them being baptized through the sea, basically them passing through it and seeing the greatness of God. You've, you've read about how the cloud covered them. You, you know all the incredible things God's done. But with those people, most of them, God wasn't pleased. See, the church in Corinth was so bent on having spiritual gifts. Like, that's all they cared about. They wanted to speak in tongues. They wanted to prophesy. They wanted to do all these things. And so Paul's trying to corral them in, saying, no, 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 that's idolatry. When all you care about is, is those things, that's idolatry. Those things are birth from a relationship with the gift giver. They're not things that we covet because it's idolatry. We, we covet the creator. But they had begun to covet those gifts. And, and Paul's kind of rewinding them back and saying, yeah, let me take you back to a story. Uh, God used to bring water out of a rock and people drank and, and, and they took that for granted. And he would rain food down from heaven and he would feed them spiritual food and, and, and they would take that for granted. And, and he passed them through the Red Sea on dry ground and they took that for granted. And, and, and he would put itself over them as a cloud and they took that for granted. And, and they took all these things for granted and made idols out of them, never once looking to the one who did these things. They took things for granted. And as God does great things in our lives and in our church, we cannot afford to not appreciate all that He's done. And many times that's where the waiting comes in. That God, we sprint to where He is. And then we stop. 
and we wait and we bask in the glory of all the beautiful things he's done. And then he moves again and we go sprinting to where he is and we bask in all the glory of the things he done. Because in order for them to continue to follow God, he took them through some places that were pretty tough. I mean, they walked around in a wilderness that had all kinds of obstacles and circumstances. Millions of people following one man named Moses. It had its ups and downs. And and there would come times they would get to a camp and they would stop. And instead of looking back and going, man, I can't believe God brought me out of Egyptian bondage and then led me through the Red Sea. And then he did this incredible thing over here. And I can't believe he let me be a part of all this. As soon as they would stop, they would go, Moses, the water isn't cold enough. The food isn't hot enough. God isn't moving fast enough. We aren't getting where we need to go quick enough. And and they took everything for granted because they complained. We cannot do that. What God has called us to do is to willingly follow Him as fast, as slow, or as as steady as He moves, He expects us to follow. And in those moments of pause, He expects us to get to the other side and look at the great things He's done and go, I can't believe I was a part of that. I can't believe when my family was member was battling cancer and we didn't know that they were going to make it and we were sitting there crying every night and then six months later we get the report from the doctor they were in remission. It doesn't mean that we then sprint even further. It means God wants us to stop and go, He did that. I can't believe He did that in my life. I don't want to take that for granted. Oh, we pray so hard, God, give me a new job. And, and we get the new job and we go, all right, God, I'm, I'm ready for a promotion. And, and God's like, stop. I just, we, this just happened. People said you would never get this and you got it. Take a moment and relax. I look at our church and, and in the past two years, God has done some incredible things and it's so easy to stand up here and go, I want more people in here. But we need to stop and look around and go, God has done some incredible things in two years. What's been navigated in two years, God has done is it's mind-blowing. He's going to move that cloud again, and we're going to follow it, and He's going to do incredible things along that journey. But maybe the calling right now for our church is to stop and go, God, you've done things. I don't know how you use knuckleheads like me, but you did it, and it's incredible, and and I want to just bask in that. I don't want to take it for granted. One of the most tragic stories in the Bible, and I want to close with this, is the story of Hosea. And if you're not familiar with the story of Hosea, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll briefly tell it to you, but if you, if you want to read it, it's the first three or four chapters of, of the book. But Hosea is somebody who probably fully understands what it means to be taken for granted. God tells Hosea, I want you to marry a woman named Gomer. Not Gomer Powell. Do you, do you read that instantly, hear his voice in your head? Okay, make sure it wasn't me. Back to the serious part of it. And so God tells him, I want you to marry a woman named Gomer. And, and, and anytime God tells you something, you think, oh man, he's, he's picked the cream of the crop for me. And what we find is, this wasn't the cream of the crop. She was living a promiscuous life, is what the Bible says, that she was sleeping around. And, and God said, you're going to go have a child with her. And those children are going to have significant names in relationship to what I'm doing in this country. And so he does, he marries her and it seemingly is a good marriage. And they have three children together. And all of a sudden, at the conclusion of having her third child, she makes a decision that she doesn't want to live that life anymore. And so she goes back to being a prostitute. And I don't know if in that moment, 
Hosea denounced her, but essentially we have almost a divorce take place because Hosea is just disgruntled, heartbroken, feeling taken for granted. But then he hears God speak to him again. And he says, Hosea, you got to take a wife and you're going to go take Gomer back as your wife. And I think about what that must have been for him. The emotional toil that he went through for God to just say, you're going to go get her back. And, and he walks to whoever it is that owns her at the moment. And for 15 shekels, he buys his wife back. Now we listen to that and go, okay, that must have been a lot of money. No, a slave at that time went for 30 shekels. That was what was set out in the Bible as the price for a slave. It tells you how undervalued she was. I'm sure that he, sh- he, he showed up with his pockets full of money, like whatever the cost is, God's told me to buy her back. I'm going to buy her back. And when they told him 15 shekels, he was probably like, that's half of what I should actually be paying for her. And broken and used and corrupted, he grabs Gomer back into his arms and he takes her back home to reunite her with, her fam- with his family. A man that had felt so taken for granted, who had been abused along the way, God did that. This is actually the first time that marriage is used as a metaphor for God's people. But we find that out of this is birthed the prophetic words that Hosea would put forward. And what we see here is the picture of what redemption looks like. That a God who created a race of people for His glory had them rebel against Him. And go, yeah, yeah, you've given me everything that I've ever wanted in life, but I don't want that. I want a promiscuous life again. And God allowed us to go on our journey, but he said, I can't let that be. I I can't let them be separated from me. So whatever it costs, I'm going to pay it. He shows up with his pockets full. And what he finds the price to be is the life of his son. And he says, though they've taken me for granted, though they've abused me, though they've rebelled against me, I love them so much that if that's the cost, then I'm willing to pay it. In that moment, the God that we had taken for granted inserted himself back into our lives. And the beautiful picture we have in that is that he not only inserted himself in our lives, but he made us the tabernacles by which he would use to reach other people. And the expectation is that we don't take him for granted in this beautiful new created life that he's given us, that we move when he tells us to move. But Hosea writes these prophetic words in in chapter 12, verse number 6. And this is to the people of God. And he says, so you, by the help of your God, return. Don't you love that? Nobody knew what that meant more than Hosea. It's as if he looked at Gomer and said, you, by God's help, because I'm struggling with it, but God's going to help me return back home. So but you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice. Basically saying, don't take for granted what's taking place here. This is what love and justice looks like. Don't take it for granted. Return and wait continually for your God. What a beautiful thing for us to hear today. God, by your help, return. Move when when he tells you to move. Hold fast to love and justice. 
Don't take Him for granted. And wait continually for your God. Stand still and acknowledge the things that God has done in your life. I'm going to ask two questions and then I'm going to close in prayer. Have you been closer to God in the past more than you are today? Have you been closer to God in the past more than you have today? If the answer is yes, then that's the definition of what it means to take God for granted. He done incredible things. The same God he was when you were close to him back then, he's even more so today in your life. And when we go, I'm not as close as I used to be, what we're really saying is I've taken for granted all the things he's done for me on my journey. And then my follow-up question to that is, what happened? What ha- was there something in your journey that you said, I, I can't be close to God any longer because I'm just not ready? What happened? The beautiful thing is today God is calling you to return. He wants you to move right now because he's called you to move. He wants you to come back to his presence. And then he wants you to wait on him to take you to the next level. God, we're so thankful for your love and your mercy. God, that like a slinky, you've called us to do some incredible things. God, you've called us to move when you want us to move and to, and to stand still when you called us to stand still. But today, God, many of us struggle with taking you for granted. God, the time that you spared us when that could have been us in that car accident and we just kept on driving, not saying thank you. God, or when you've healed people that we've prayed for, we didn't even take a second to go, thank you for that. God, we struggle with seeing the true value of you. But God, today I pray for each and every person that the value of who you are would, could be solidified in their life. And they would know that who they are today is because of what you've done for them. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I, I want to give you that chance I want to call out the words of Hosea to you. So you, by the help of your God, return. If that's you this morning, I want to call you to return. If that's you this morning, I want to call you to the altar. I want to pray with you. I want to introduce you back to your Creator. And when He wraps you in His arms of love, I want to be there for that moment because the same God who saved you, sustains you, and has called you home today. This morning while the praise team is playing and we're singing, I ask if that's you to know that the altar is open and God has called you to return.